electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. A pretty nice week shaping up for the major averages. The Dow just turned positive on the session, trying to extend its win streak to four straight days. My next guest says it's all just Tina and FOMO, but he's got three stocks still poised to benefit. Plus, a different way to play this hot housing market. We're talking manufactured homes and why that area is poised to take off even more from here. And an earnings exchange, the action, the story, and the trade on Lulu, Costco, and Broadcom. But first, Dom Chu with our numbers today. Lightning flashbacks, Kelly, to our earnings exchange in Hormel yesterday. I'm going to get to that in a second because Hormel is the best-performing stock in the S&P. But let's start with the major indexes, because as Kelly pointed out, we've now taken a peek at green for the Dow. It's up a very modest 40 points, but still it could be a four-day winning streak. Not as much so for the S&P 500, still down about two-tenths of 1%, 46.92 the last trade there. 15,671 for the NASDAQ composite. It's got a little bit more ground to make up. It's down about three-quarters of 1% right now. So the underperformance really coming in that technology and media-type trade. Now, I mentioned Hormel from the earnings exchange yesterday. We talked about Spam, Dinty Moore, you know, all the chilies they got going on. Well, Hormel Foods is up 6% right now in trading. The best performance stock in the S&P. This is an earnings-driven story. They came out with better-than-expected results, profits, and revenues, and it was driven in large part by a surge in their food service channel operations, selling to professional restaurants and those outlets. That's up, by the way, some 33% from pre-pandemic levels back in 2019. So something to keep an eye on. Hormel Foods up big on that. And then The stock everybody needs to pay attention to, of course, is Apple. It's the biggest one out there, the heaviest weighting in indices like the Nasdaq Composite, the 100, and, of course, the S&P 500. It's up a very modest one-third of 1%. But the reason why we want to talk about it is $182.86 or thereabouts. The reason why that's important is with current shares outstanding, that would be the number at which Apple gets to that $3 trillion, T, trillion dollar valuation. I will point out, though, that Apple is getting a bit of a boost today because analysts at Morgan Stanley, led by Katie Huberty, we talked about them on Tuesday, street high price target of 200 bucks a share. They now call it Kelly, their top large cap IT hardware pick for 2022. So a little bit of a bid there for Apple. I'll send things back over. We to you. are so close to three trillion. Dom, thank you very Got much. It. Now, stocks are trying to put together a four-day win streak. My next guest says FOMO and Tina will remain alive and well, keeping this market rally going from here. He has three stocks that will benefit from this. Joining me now is Dan Genter, the CEO and Chief Investment Officer at RNC Genter Capital Management. Dan, it's good to see you again. First of all, I don't think you're describing this rally in flattering terms. So when you say poised to benefit with these stocks, explain what you mean by that. Well, I think what you're seeing, Kelly, is that this is just a market that people want to be in. I mean, they're uh, again, they're afraid of missing out. 
Uh, they don't have a lot of alternatives, and they want to be in this market. And uh, they're getting pickier, though, with what they want to have. They're, they are a little concerned. You know, we saw that recently with the 3.5% pullback, you know, when we had a little speed bump in the road. And, uh, but they want to get back in. So I think what they're looking for is becoming more discerning. Things are starting to tilt a little more towards value. I think when you look at, at companies like uh, Enbridge, I mean, it gives you, you know, it's the, the largest midstream energy company in the country, primarily focused on pipelines, but they're way ahead of the game with renewable energy. And the thing that I like about it is sitting at about a 15 PE, you get 6.9%, basically 7% while you wait. And, yeah. um, and that's just a, a good place to ride this out as we probably go into this market advancing a little bit slower, you know, into 2022. Yeah, no, energy investors are absolutely salivating over the cash flows that we might see, especially if they are, you know, hesitant on investment. I was going to say, usually when I see you, I think dividends immediately. So <laughs> case of Enbridge, Gilead, Disney, are all of these for you primarily dividend plays? And why do you think they might be especially poised to benefit in this market environment? Well, certainly Enbridge with almost 7% is going to be a dividend play. Uh, you know, with Gilead, you know, you've got 4.1%. There again, I think it's, it's, it's more of a fundamental play there than a dividend play. It's nice to have the dividend, but you do. You're dealing with a company that's about, at about a 10 PE right now. It's really undervalued. It has a 75% market share, you know, that has an HIV. And I think the untold story is, uh, is where they're growing in oncology. And I think uh, so the, the stock really has an ability to leverage up again. Disney is actually not a dividend play, pay. They, they cut their dividend and eliminated it. Mm. I think there's a potential dividend play in the future because I think it's going to come back online uh, just because they were down about 30% in revenues because of the pandemic. But they really took that as an opportunity to take lemons and make lemonade and dramatically increase their direct-to-consumer business, you know, which is now a $26 billion business, and it'll be about a third of their revenue. So when, when, this, when parks and cruises and other things come back online, I mean, they really have a chance to expand dramatically. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not cheap at 26 times, but probably coming down more to 22 as we go over the next two to three years. But I am surprised to see that in your portfolio, you know, why is it that, it, you know, since it's not paying a dividend, you like it? Is it because there's anticipation that dividend is coming back or just you can't resist it when you think you see a bargain? Well, I think it's both. I mean, clearly, you know, as I mentioned, I think that it's a two to three year play on Disney. And we just like the fact that now they've you know, literally increased their revenue by about another third through the pandemic by taking advantage of this opportunity and direct to consumer. And I think the dividend will come back online. I mean, they've been a long term dividend payer. And so as cash flow increases, they're expecting uh, revenues to be up 40 percent next year. So as they get that cash flow coverage, I think they'll come back with the dividend and the stock will clearly get a significant bump when they when they bring that uh, and return that. All right, Dan, thank you very much for your thoughts today. It's good to have you. Nice to be with you. Dan Genter with RNC Genter Capital Management. All right, let's get over to the bond market. 30-year just went up for auction. It did not go well. Rick Santelli here with the results and the walkthrough. Rick? It would have had to improve dramatically to get up to horrible. That's how bad it was. We're talking about 22 billion 30-year bonds. The grade I gave it for demand, it's straight up one Eastern, D minus, dog minus. Uh, the yield? 1.895, which is really the bulk of the problem, how it priced, because the one issue market was trading four basis points lower at 185 and a half. Four basis points a tail, that is humongous. Now, granted, it's a reopening on a mini refunding, but probably the issue is the exact topic you're talking about. Tina, Tina isn't being long treasuries. 
Tina's being low on stock, especially when you have a CPI number tomorrow where the headline number last month was up nine-tenths of one percent. All the internals on this auction, the bid to cover, the indirects, the directs, were all less than the 10 auction average. The only thing that was above 10 auction average was the dealer takedown, which is not a good thing. You want dealers to take less because that means investors are taking more. So the last leg of $112 billion in the mini refunding is a D minus, and you can see yields popping as we speak. Kelly. Back to you. Rick, on Monday, when we talked about the prospect of the 10-year going above 1.5% this week, you were saying, look, that would already kind of trigger a lot more activity. Plus, we had all of this inventory coming to market. Well, here we are with the inventory, you know, the rubber meat uh, hitting the road, and not a lot of appetite for it. Is this just a temporary phenomenon? Yeah, no, I don't think it's a temporary phenomenon. As a matter of fact, I will go on record. I think you're going to start to see more traction on long-dated Treasuries yields moving higher, and that doesn't necessarily mean a steepening yield curve, because I think we're going to see a bear flattening continue. I think rates are going to go up across the whole curve, but I still think short rates probably outpace long rates, and I'm still sticking with right around 1.6% for the close on 10 years. Call me crazy. I'm sticking with my number. All right. 1.5 is where we got to after that 30-year auction. Rick, thank you so much. Meantime, Starbucks workers in upstate New York are awaiting the results of their vote on whether to form the first union at a Starbucks-owned store in the U.S. Kate Rogers has been following this story and joins us now with the latest. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Well, it all comes down to fewer than 100 workers in Buffalo, New York today in this big union fight for Starbucks. So far, the NLRB has twice sided with workers who are looking to unionize at three Starbucks stores in the region, which has a total of 20 locations. Voting ended last night via mail-in ballot, and votes are being counted as we speak. Now, on Mad Money this week, company CEO Kevin Johnson said there's a national dialogue out there on unionization right now, but broadly, he feels workers are not seeking to unionize at all of its stores, although he does expect a few more stores. Uh, to seek to organize here. I also just got off the phone with Ross Ann Williams, Starbucks EVP and president of North America's, who said this has been a really a rich learning experience for the company. She's been on the ground there for months to support and hear workers out. Now, if Starbucks Workers United is successful, this would mark the first unionized, company-operated Starbucks location in the U.S. since it went public. But the street doesn't seem to mind. The stock is up nearly 6% this month. So far, down about 2.5% in the last three. The pro-worker union, uh, pro-union workers rather tell me that they are are nervous but confident today said that it really feels like Christmas Eve. Kelly, back over to you. Kate, how much is the rest of the restaurant industry watching what happens with this Starbucks vote? I mean, Starbucks is really known for its progressive benefits, right? This is kind of a watershed moment, I think, broadly in the restaurant industry. There are, remember, three more stores also seeking to unionize in Buffalo, then one more for Starbucks in Mesa, Arizona. So really all eyes on Starbucks and what happens today. All right, but there are other possibilities, even if this one doesn't get approved. Kate, thank you. We appreciate it. Kate Rogers will be following that story for us today. Coming up, are solar stocks going to the moon? J.P. Morgan naming its top alt-energy picks for 2022, but some of these names have been crashing down from their recent highs. We'll speak with this analyst next. Plus, we're talking semis, apparel, and Charlie Munger in earnings exchange with Broadcom, Lululemon, and Costco all set to report after the bell. We'll bring you the action, the story, and how to trade them ahead of results. As we head to break, here's a quick look at the Dow heat map as the major average just turned positive. Uh, more green than red just by a hair. Uh, you can see that Walgreens is the best performer today, Boeing the laggard. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. 
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. It's been a volatile year for alternative energy stocks. The iShares Renewable Energy ETF down 13%. The Invesco Solar ETF, ticker TAN, lower by 17% this year. But J.P. Morgan expecting better in 2022, naming its top picks in the area that they think are due for a comeback. Joining me now is Mark Strauss, the analyst behind this outlook. Mark, thanks for joining me. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. I mean, just a quick question about 2021. Why do you think the stocks have performed so poorly in a year in which we've actually seen more attention on the energy transition than ever? Yeah, it's been interesting. The uh, the sentiment seems to change uh, quicker than the fundamentals do. Uh, you know, so th- there's been there's been a lot of disruption this year, just like in 2020 with the disruption from COVID. Uh, you know, this year faced similar hurdles. We had supply chain disruption. We had uh, you know global uh, shipping issues. We had company specific semiconductor polysilicon issues, as well as geopolitical tensions uh, between the U.S. and China. Uh, I think the important thing uh, to remember, though, is, you know, although those those things impact sentiment, you look at the growth in the industry, uh, solar shipments this year alone are up about 27 percent year over year. Wow. Uh, So, you know, growing through the last couple of years of very significant hurdles, we think is a a very good long-term indicator that the energy transition is happening. One final question in this regard, because, you know, a lot of the solar names, the domestic solar names, often people don't like them because of the financing model and sort of just the fundamental business model. They say it's not about the energy transition. It's the fact that these aren't great businesses with a lot of exposure and and that sort of thing. I mean, what what is your response to that? How tested and proven are these business models? We've covered the space for a long time, uh, about 10 years now. It has been very interesting to see the, the maturation of the industry. Uh, we've gone through a lot of ups and downs over the years. Uh, there, through that, though, there have been a lot of companies that have emerged as, as solid winners. You've got real companies that are out there with with real growth, real margins, uh, real barriers to entry, and, and real cash flow and balance sheets. Uh, so, you know, there there are certainly some complicated business models still in the industry. Um, you know, and you know, I, I think they've been around long enough that investors are getting comfortable with how to think about valuation. Um, but generally speaking, uh, you know, this is not just a uh, an industry that's on the whim of government incentives like it was 10 years ago. There are real companies out there. So Array Technologies, your price target is 38 bucks. A Sunrun, you have 86. And Sonova, you have 66. Why are these three your top picks? Um, for different reasons. So Sunrun and Sonova, uh, to your point about, uh, you know, kind of uh, the, the financing model, these are residential solar installation companies. Uh, so if you look at the, the reported gap financials that are out there, 
uh, it's pretty messy. Uh, as long as these companies are growing, they are recognizing the expense, the capex associated with with finding a homeowner and selling them the system and installing that system. They recognize cash over a, a long term contracted uh, you know cash flow period. Um, the uh, so it, it's a fairly complicated business model, but like I said, the, uh, the the valuation framework is getting easier to understand. These companies are generating cash now, uh, and the reason we're calling them out is that you know, these these two stocks have been relatively weak compared to our overall coverage over the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of that is because of of interest rates, which we think that there's. There's some dichotomy there that uh, isn't necessarily understood by uh, kind of generalists looking at these stocks. Um, but the, the the big picture is that 2022, we think that there will be a, a, an increase in their margins, right? Okay. So these companies are transitioning from just solar installation companies to adding more and more services over time. You're seeing the attach rates of, of homeowners that are choosing to add energy storage increasing. They're also getting into electric vehicle charging, uh, you know, home standby generators, yeah. uh, you know, home energy management systems. There's more and more value that is being added to a homeowner over time. Uh, and we think that that really starts to kick in in 2022. Yeah, it's certainly more, with, more, more common to see it in my neck of the woods. Mark, we appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Mark Strauss with J.P. Morgan. Some breaking news out of Washington. The Senate holding a key procedural vote on the debt ceiling. Elon Moy on Capitol Hill with the latest. Elon? Well, Kelly, the Senate has voted to move forward on a new fast-track process to raise the nation's debt limit ahead of Treasury's December 15th deadline. Now, this deal was pre-negotiated between Republican and Democratic leadership to avoid some of the political brinksmanship that has spooked investors and risk default in the past Ultimately, 14 Republicans sided with Democrats in a vote that was 64 to 36 to advance this bill. Now, I need to say that this bill does not raise the debt limit itself, but it gives Democrats the authority to do just that, just this once, with just 51 votes. The final passage of this process is expected to happen either later tonight or early tomorrow morning. Once that vote is over, Democratic leadership is hoping that Congress will be on a glide path toward raising the debt ceiling. But again, the Senate moving forward on that fast track process for raising the debt limit. Kelly. All right, Elon, thank you very much. Elon Moy, still ahead. Are you ready for 24-hour trading? I mean, we kind of already have it, but this is a big deal. A new company is negotiating with the SEC to bring this to reality. We'll have the full details next. Plus, this stock is popping in its public debut after merging with the SPAC. Think you know the name? Tweet me at KellyCNBC. We'll reveal it and unpack the move next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Quick check on markets. Dow is in positive territory for what would be the fourth straight day here, but the S&P is down 10 and the Nasdaq is down 138. So very different picture depending on where you're looking. Here are some of the movers that we're looking at this hour. American Airlines is slightly lower after announcing plans to trim international flights next year. 
Thanks to delivery delays of Boeing's 787 Dreamliners, American shares down two-thirds of 1%. Boeing, by the way, the worst performer in the Dow right now. And Southwest catching a pair of downgrades with UBS lowering it to neutral and Jefferies lowering it to hold from buy, saying that love has higher exposure to inflationary pressures versus peers. For more on these calls, head over to cnbc.com slash pro. Southwest is down nearly 4% today. We're also keeping our eye on a bunch of IPOs, two market debuts from Brazilian fintech Nubank and software hard vendor HashiCorp, both priced at the top or above their range, both in the green right now. HashiCorp up 4%, News up 22%. New just opened a few moments ago. HashiCorp, as I mentioned, only slightly higher today. But the mystery chart was boxed. Remember boxed? We showed you that before the break. In a SPAC today, making its debut, the company's first trading session since merging with Seven Oaks acquisition, including today's move, the online retailers now valued at just under a billion dollars. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Kelly. And here's what's happening at this hour. A former reality TV star has been convicted of downloading and possessing child pornography. Josh Duggar became famous on the TLC show 19 Kids and Counting. Now faces prison sentences of up to 20 years on each of the two counts. Duggar's show was canceled in 2015 following revelations that he had molested four of his sisters and a babysitter. New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art taking the Sackler name off of some of its most important galleries. The museum and Sackler family say it was a joint decision. The Met is the latest museum to remove the Sackler name over the family's ties to Purdue Pharma and the opioid epidemic. The Sackler wing of the Met includes the iconic Egyptian Temple of Dender. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen announcing a kleptocracy fund. It's part of a push to fight corruption at home and abroad and is also meant to reward tips on where corrupt foreign leaders hide their money in the U.S. And on the news tonight, going to space to learn more about black holes and the origins of the universe. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Kelly, I'll send it back. Thank you so much, Rahel. We appreciate it. Coming up, Broadcom, Lululemon, Costco, all set to report after the bell. We'll tackle each stock and the key things you need to know in earnings exchange. And as we head to break, shares of CVS rising more than 4% today. The drug maker seeing sales accelerating in the year ahead. The CEO joins us exclusively on Power Lunch next hour. You don't want to miss it. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for another earnings exchange. We're talking chips and retail today. We'll start with Broadcom. It's the fourth biggest component of the SMH, but it's lagged the index this year. It's up only 34%. It's near all-time highs as well. Analysts are watching for updates on wireless 5G trends, the outlook for the chip shortage, which seems to be improving slightly. Josh Lipton is here with a story on Broadcom, and Matt Maley has our trades today. He's chief investment strategist at Miller Tabak and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to you both. All right, Josh, Broadcom, what are you watching? So, Kelly, as you mentioned, that stock is up about 30% this year heading into this print, and it is right around the all-time high there. I did check in with Chris Rowland over at Susquehanna. He knows the name. Bottom line, he is expecting a beat and raise this quarter. In terms of some of the puts and takes that he tells me he's going to be looking for, one, he says, listen, we know strong demand for networking. You saw that for customers like Cisco and Arista. Uh, Better than expected reports and guides and cloud and enterprise, Chris saying, you see those improving as well. Also, wireless, of course, is in focus. 
focus here. We know some investors do think uh, Broadcom is a smart play and bet on that continuing 5G ramp. And remember, this is also an Apple customer. Enterprise storage is a bit more mixed. Chris Rowland says you saw Intel worse than expected, but Seagate, he points out, was better. And then, of course, as you mentioned, Kelly, another big theme we're always watching here is those ongoing supply constraints and whether that could cap top line upside. Kelly. For sure, Matt. I mean, the 25% rally over the past month, does that make you like it more or less? Well, you know, it's funny because usually you, you worry about Jesus. It's rallying so strongly going into the uh, uh, into its earnings announcement to be a concern. And it is getting a little overbought on a very short-term basis. So I suppose anything can happen. Uh, but as you as you mentioned, the stock's actually been lagging in a way. And, and it's not an expensive stock at all. I mean, a lot of these names have really become very expensive. This stock's trading at 20 times forward earnings. So, uh, you know, if it does pull back at all, it, it, it's still, uh, I think it would be a great opportunity to buy the stock. I mean, again, the key is, is going to be, you know, what their guidance is. We're always looking for guidance, what their revenue guidance is. Uh, like, for instance, uh, we, you guys were just talking about the networking. Uh, uh, net, you know, they've really been pushing this networking, the, the, the revenue uh, in, in the networking area. Uh, their overall uh, revenue being looking like about 14% for this year. But what's it going to look like for next year? That's what we want to hear. And then, of course, uh, the biggest thing is going to be uh, this whole supply shortage uh, and such. So, uh, but the thing is, we've had a lot of stocks in this group that have really had big runs and Broadcom, not so much until very recently. So we could still have uh, plenty of upside uh, after it kind of settles down a little bit. Josh, any other uh, color on why they've suddenly seen this big rally in the last several weeks? Well, listen, if you talk to Bulls, one, as Matt just pointed out, they still like the valuation here. They they think it's attractive. They continue to think this, bottom line, they have strong franchises here. And they believe in this company's integration strategy, meaning this company under Hock Tan, we know Kelly, has been very acquisitive. They've been buying software companies. You have to believe they're going to continue folding those companies effectively and efficiently into that larger semi-group, Kelly. All right. We'll look forward to those results after the bell. The shares are dipping slightly today, Josh. Thanks. Move along to Lululemon now. The retailer up 21% this year. Analysts looking for Lulu's forecast to see how durable the transition to athleisure is and how their online presence is growing. Courtney Reagan is here with the Lulu story today. Court, did they just get another big help from Omicron and the idea that work from home is still going to be with us for some time? Very possibly, Kelly. Obviously, we know that Athleisure has so many players, but Lulu really has a very secure spot in that ecosystem. It's sort of a very desirable brand for many people. Um, and we know that the Google search trends actually are seeing about a 34 percent increase compared to sort of the same time in 2019. So we think the momentum is sustained here. If we're going to stay at home, maybe one, two days a week, maybe more than that. What's better than sitting in those Lululemon pants? I think there might be some concern about what's going to happen with that mirror acquisition if the company is really going to be able to turn that into a profitable enterprise. So I think we're looking for some clarity about that on the call. But comp sales are expected to be very strong. Uh, the average uh, on the street, I think, is looking for 26 percent. But many analysts are actually individually taking that higher here right into the wow. print. Yeah, it looks like the store comps even could be up 32 to 34 percent. I mean, those are huge right. numbers. Um, Matt, what would you be watching for to be a buyer of the stock tonight? The key is going to be, I think, the margins. Uh, you know, how do they look? I mean, the stock is expensive. I and mean, we're 56 times uh, earnings, uh, almost 10 times sales. Uh, so that's a little bit of a concern. Uh, but I agree that the, the, if, if anything in this winter has told us is that when people are not, whether they're going back to uh, back to work in the office, they're not going five days a week in the vast majority of, of uh, uh 
uh, of industries anyway. And uh, so this is here to stay. But my key is going to be talking about these margins. Uh, you know, what I, I, I had to talk to my wife on this to be sure. And I, I, I hope <laughs> I pronounced it correctly. Viori, is that how you pronounce Viori, it? Viori, yeah. But, you know, we, we talked yeah, there's some competition there, and it's a little bit lower priced, and I, from what I understand, it's doing quite well. And if people start to think, well, geez, I can get the same thing for a lower price, what does that do to a Lululemon's margins? And with an expensive stock, it may have to come in if that's the case. If the margins remain strong, the stock will really remain strong. And the law, the thing I'd say is the stock has come down recently. The last time the same thing happened just before they earned it, uh, before they reported. And they reported great earnings, and the stock just shot up. So uh, I don't want to put too much of a damper on it, but if those margins are good, this should be a, a real good opportunity for the stock to bounce. Court, talk for a second about this Viore phenomenon. I, I, you know, I, I still remember <laughs> when a friend of mine recommended them, and I thought it was like the name of a Lululemon pant, not its own company. And now oh. every time you turn around, people are talking about it. You see the ads, the, the joggers are absolutely everywhere. Absolutely. I, too, uh, had a recommendation for my sister-in-law. She says these are great. You have to buy them. She sort of peer pressured me into buying them. I, I did. They are great. Um, they're sold at Nordstrom, of course, but this is also a, a sort of direct-to-consumer brand that really has gotten a lot of traction from some of those social channels, like you mentioned, Kelly, the Instagram ads that are probably targeting you and me and, mm -hmm. and many of the rest of us sort of in, in our age range. But they're not inexpensive, but yes, they are certainly a little bit lower price point than a Lululemon. They don't have the breadth of assortment really that Lululemon has at this point, but those joggers really are sort of that, that key pant. I'm not sure that it hits at much of the performance aspect, more of that athleisure aspect. But of course, we know some people buy Lululemon, you know, me, maybe, just to kind of sit around it yeah. too. I was going to say it's mom performance, not a, it's not an athletic play at all. So right. Lulu there has been impressive with all the competition. Uh, we'll see what they say tonight about uh, profit margins amid all of that. Court, stay right there. We're going to talk some Costco to round things out here. The value retailer is up 40% this year and weathering the volatility of the past month pretty well. Labor shortages, supply chain issues, inflation, all could be key factors here. What are we watching for in these results, Court? So Costco is one of those that really has very few surprises when they report, Kelly, because they still give us monthly information about sales. So we know where the comp sales already were. For the month of September, they were higher by a little more than 14%. For October, higher by 17%. And then the month of November, tick back down to higher by about 14%. We pretty much know where revenues are going to come in. So little room for surprise. We don't see the stock move a whole lot on this. It's also considered more of a staple. But if inflation becomes a bigger issue, I imagine that Costco will be one of the beneficiaries. We know that they did raise wages for their workers sort of early on. So that is going to be in this report. But this is not the first quarter that we've seen that. And it's something that has been well telegraphed. Remember, they also are a seller of gasoline. And mm. so we have to look at those numbers. But they do also provide us information where they strip out those numbers. But certainly there's been inflation in the price of energy as well. So sort of a lot of little details to look for but I really expect a pretty solid report. This is a very steady eddy company when it comes to reporting, and they always give us a little glimpse as we go along, so there's not a whole lot of rooms for surprises. But we'll see if they sold another $100,000 engagement ring in the quarter. Sometimes yeah, they give seriously. us a fun little nugget like that. I know, call. I hope they do. Um, and Matt, at the same time, 45 is the multiple here, 45 times earnings. That's a, it's a high number, but we just heard from Charlie Munger talking about how he thinks they're in the early innings of online and will end up doing quite well in that space. Yeah, and that, that's the one. It's the only little concern I have is, is, is its valuation. But as Courtney said, I think they're in an unbelievably great 
uh, a place to, to take advantage of, of, of inflation. I mean, it's wholesale uh, shopping. You get a little bit better price. Uh, uh, if we have inflation, and, and, and it's not just food inflation. They used to think about Costco just being kind of a food store. Obviously, it's much more than that, as Courtney just said. And uh, so people are going to it's going to attract a lot of people, not just over the next couple of months, but for, for many months, uh, you know, it could be even for, for, for years if you listen to some people. Uh, and, you know, the thing that that I, I do like about this thing, too, is that. Uh, well, I'm sorry. The one thing I do like is, is that it's not just Costco. We have some other names. And the thing is, if the stock gets too expensive here, I mean, it's, if it continues to rally, which I think it likely will for these reasons, but you still want to look at something like Walmart, which has a very similar uh, uh, you know, background in terms of when it comes to uh, uh, you know, the attractiveness for, for as, as an inflation hedge. People, you know, uh, people looking for lower-priced items in a place like a Walmart, the stock's only trading at 20 times earnings. So uh, both stocks are really great. Costco is best in class when it comes to the way the, the management team and the way they run their business. It's unbelievable. Uh, but Walmart is also one you should look at as well, uh, just because it's, it's simply it's a cheaper stock. All right. We'll leave it there. Matt Maley, Courtney Reagan, thank you both very much today. That does it for this edition of Earnings Exchange. Still ahead, job openings are far outnumbering job seekers. Could fractional work be the key to closing that gap? We'll explain next. And before we head to break, it's time for some show and tell. We show the chart and tell the story. Today's stock is Tesla down another 4%. ARK Investments' Kathy Wood sharing her thoughts on the automaker, which also happens to still be the largest holding in her flagship fund, earlier on Squawk Box. We assume in our $3,000 forecast uh, that there's a 50% chance uh, that, uh, that, that its autonomous strategy is going to uh, play out. Uh, and our confidence is beginning to increase now that the pilot test is taking place and you've got devoted Tesla owners uh, really identifying the corner cases that are uh, causing problems for full self-driving. So uh, we're, pretty, we're pretty excited about that. Welcome back. Last week's jobless claims fell to a 52-year low, while continuing claims are back to pre-COVID levels. As yesterday's JOLTS data shows, job openings far outnumber job seekers to the tune of nearly 4 million these days. One of the options for filling those positions is fractional employment, where an employee works part-time for several different employers during the week. And one company facilitating this sort of hiring at the executive level is Continuum. They match startups with execs who have the knowledge and experience, but who may not want to be tied to a full-time position. Joining me now is Continuum CEO, Nolan Church. Nolan, welcome. It springs to mind that a CFO position might be perfect for something like this. You got it, Kelly. It's great to be here. Uh, currently, right now, we are focused actually on the people operation space. Hmm. So think of HR, recruiting. That is our hyper-focus today. But a lot of our customers are asking for fractional CFOs. That is also one of the hardest jobs to hire for in this market. Yeah, I mean, from the company's point of view, a lot of them can't afford their own full-time uh, officer like that. Certainly somebody, you know, well-trained for the, for the role. But at the same time, I don't know how you can really juggle the intimate financial details of multiple different companies at one time. Well, this, this actually happens today. Um, actually, our company currently uses a fractional CFO to help us out closing our books every month. Mm -hmm. um, so I do, be I do believe it is possible. You know, you mentioned the cost piece. Cost is definitely a, a driver that we're seeing. But I actually think the bigger driver is speed. Time to hire right now for executive level roles 
uh, for what we are seeing is in the nine to 12 month range. Wow. And some of these companies are growing so fast that they just do not have the time to wait for somebody to be in that seat full time. How detailed is your role? You know, do you guys offer basically an online database? Hey, here are people who might be available or do you go so far as conducting all the interviews, doing all the prep work? You know, how far do you go? Yeah, we go we go quite deep. And the reason we go deep is because we want to optimize for the best experience for companies and executives. So when an executive gets referred to us, that's the first thing that we optimize for is a referral from the current network. We then go and interview that person and understand their skill set, where they are strong, where they are weak, and where they can add value. Once that happens, then we start matching them with companies that come inbound to us for these specific needs. We look at the company's current problem set, what stage and size they are, match them with executives. And then typically what we do is we, we set up an intro conversation, one maximum of two. And at that point in time, the company feels like they have enough information to move forward with that person. It's interesting uh, to look at your own bio. You were the 56th employee at DoorDash, as I read, the first uh, head of talent. Uh, Then you've done a bunch of different kind of things in this vein. How big can Continuum get? And are you worried about, you know, the sort of, uh, what am I trying to say, the the small moat where anyone else can kind of say, great idea, Nolan, I'm going to do it too. For sure. So let me tell you that this idea was born out of my own experience. Um, You mentioned my experience at DoorDash. I then went on to lead the people team at Carta. And once I got to Carta, I started seeing CEOs in TechCrunch every day investing in all of these other companies. And I was wondering how they got deal flow. And it turns out, you know, there's a CEO network and the investors typically tap these folks and they become prolific angel investors. Well, I started asking some of my peers at the C-level hey, how many investments do you have? Are you consulting at all? Are you currently advising? And I kept hearing that the answer was no. And when I asked why, they said, well, I just don't have that network. I don't have any deal flow. Mm. And so that is a core problem to solve for this elite talent, for executives and experts. Deal flow is the hardest thing to get when you decide to, to go out on your own, become a fractional executive, yeah. that's the problem that we solve. And that's also why we're not worried about a small moat. We actually think the world is moving in this direction. Executives and experts have more agency than ever. Mm-hmm. And once we help them build these businesses and solve their back office problems, we think that they're going to stay with us for a very long time. No, I, I have to say I see it that way as well. Nolan, thanks so much for joining us to talk about it. Great to be here. Thank you. Nolan Church is the CEO of Continuum. Still ahead, a new stock exchange may render the term after hours trading moot. We have the details next. Remember, you you can catch this show anytime, anywhere, 24-7. Follow our exchange podcast. And while you're there, be sure to check out my new Conversations with Kelly, because five minutes on TV sometimes isn't enough to take a deep dive on major issues. I sit down with big players for extended conversations on things like energy and the metaverse. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. We've got the first results of the Starbucks unionization vote in Buffalo, New York. Kate Rogers here. Kate? Yeah, and it's a win for the pro-union workers here. Kelly, Starbucks workers at its Elmwood location in Buffalo, New York, have voted 19 versus 8 in favor of forming a union. This is set to be the first union at a Starbucks company-operated store in the United States since the company went public. Now, Starbucks Workers United getting its first victory here. This store count is three stores underway, two more to go right now via Zoom. The results still need to be certified in about a week. Both sides can challenge the results. And as we said earlier, there are three more stores seeking to unionize in Buffalo and then one more 
Baltimore and Mesa, Arizona. Vote schedules and hearings to come on those. Kelly, we'll bring you any more news as we get it. Back over to you. Kate, did you say is this uh, vote settled now or is it still open? Uh, this vote is the first tally. This is settled. There are two more stores we're awaiting results from. And again, the results still need to be certified across all three in about a week. And, and both sides can challenge. But as of right now, a win for the union. So for at least one store, this is now the case. Fascinating. All right, Kate, That's right. for now, thank you. We'll check back in soon, Kate Rogers. Meantime, at least one big Wall Street name is backing a new stock exchange that wants to enable 24-hour-a-day trading. Bob Bassani has the details and whether there's demand for it. Bob? Oh, we need this, right, Kelly? Are you ready for 24-hour trading? I'm not. A new company exchange, a new company, 24 Exchange, has been launched and is now in negotiations with the SEC to launch a stock exchange that would be open around the clock in 2022. Hedge fund titan Steve Cohen is an investor. There's been talk about a 24-hour exchange for decades, but nothing ever happened. What's changed? The founders of this new exchange say that investors have gotten used to trading crypto around the clock and that the Reddit crowd and the Asian crowd are also interested in doing it 24-7, including on the weekends. Now, others say the demand is not there. The market, remember, already has expanded hours before and after the usual trading day. From 4 a.m. to 9.30 a.m. you can trade, and then from 4 to 8 p.m. you can also trade in extended hours. And remember, there's futures that can extend that even further. There seems to be microbursts of trading after hours around things like earnings, but not much else. Kelly, uh, this does have some momentum around it. Uh, Dmitry Galinov tells me that the, uh, and, and other people I've talked to, note that the SEC has repeatedly warned about the risk of trading in extended hours. So the SEC on its website, look, this has a whole list of problems associated with this, including limited liquidity, large spreads, increased volatility, uncertain prices, professional competition from institutional traders. So we've got a long list of problems, but this momentum here, Kelly, the they have submitted a preliminary application to the SEC. The SEC has responded to them. And I am being told by them that they are about to submit the full application. So, Kelly, this tells me if this was a total non-starter with the SEC, right. they would have told them, go away, don't, don't bother us anymore. I don't think it's a non-starter. I, I think it's the future, Bob. Get ready. 3 a.m., Bob Bassani. I'm just dying <laughs> already, you know. It's 3 p.m. and I'm already. <laughs> Bob, thank you. We okay. appreciate it. Coming up, the ongoing migration out of cities has pushed home prices to record levels. We'll talk to the CEO of a REIT that's nearly tripled since the 2020 low about how they're working to keep housing affordable after this. Record low inventory is pushing home prices through the roof. They're up nearly 20% just from last year. Demand for affordable homes is growing by the day, and an under-the-radar housing rate is set to cash in. UMH Properties specializes in selling and renting manufactured homes or pre-built. With more than 100 communities up and down the East Coast, they typically cost a fraction of the average market price. UMH shares is a little lower today, but they're up 60% this year. For more, let's welcome in UMH Properties CEO Sam Landy. Sam, it's great to have you. Welcome. Thank you for having me. This is, I mean, maybe we can show some footage as well, but these manufactured homes are pretty impressive these days, aren't they? Uh, yes, they are. The factories do an incredible job. They provide us with three-bedroom, two-bath, energy efficient homes. The average cost per square foot of a manufactured home is $57 per square foot versus conventional housing of $119 per square foot. 
Wow. And sometimes I wonder about the quality of the new build. Um, just, you know, some of the things that I've seen in our town. But I guess the issue is not so much um, whether it's a manufactured home or not, it's your location. So is part of the affordability uh, being a little bit further out or are you able to find land and opportunities to build these homes in accessible neighborhoods? So the difficulty is building new communities. We own 127 existing communities. And in those communities, we can provide a thousand square foot, three bedroom, two bath home on a 5,000 square foot lot with your own driveway and shed for as little as 800 a month to rent. And, you know, we're in Jackson, New Jersey, Eatontown, New Jersey, near Allentown, Pennsylvania. So generally, you know, those are high priced housing locations, yet we can still provide this quality affordable product. We very much want to be able to build new communities throughout the country. And that's, uh, the difficult issue of local zoning hmm. and HUD Secretary Fudge and various people in the federal government are trying to make it simpler to build more manufactured home communities. So speaking of things that are happening in Washington, there are a couple of possibilities uh, in a couple of bills that would offer assistance to first time homebuyers. One would be $25,000 in direct payments, the other a $15,000 tax credit. Would you generally like to see that happen, or do you think it would just continue to raise housing prices and kind of be a wash uh, when all is said and done? No, it would be fantastic for you know a substantial part of the United States population. The history of manufactured housing dating back to the 1960s is the most difficult issue in buying the home is the down payment. And you know those down payment amounts you're talking about, that's predominantly manufactured housing. Uh, 38% of the country earns less than $50,000 per year. And affordable housing is defined as housing where 30% of your income, uh, that the housing costs no more than 30% of your income. And that's manufactured housing. We can provide somebody with a house for under $1,250 per month. So that subsidy of the down payment would greatly increase accessibility to manufactured homes for a number of people who need it. And finally, the cost of materials, is that impacting your pricing? It does. The uh, you know costs from the factory uh, are up 40% as they are on all types of housing. But again, you know, five years ago, we were buying the homes that we use for rent from the factories for $40,000. And today they're costing us $70,000. But be that as it may, it's still the most affordable product there is out there. And it, more of the population needs it. Yeah, and you're also a good reminder that renting is as important as being able to buy outright uh, for a lot of these folks as well. Sam, thanks for your time today. It's good to have you here. Thank you very much. Sam Landy of UMH Properties. Again, they're New Jersey-based, up more than 60% this year as demand for anything housing has just been going through, through the roof. Uh, that does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for your time. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.